Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the DSRnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us. Support us. Go to the DSRnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we talk about things political, and we are very happy to be joined today by Steve Schmidt. You know him as a political commentator, strategic advisor, and host of The Warning Podcast. You can also find him on his Substack, also named The Warning. Uh, and each and every week, uh, welcome, Steve. Good to be with you, David. And each and every week, it seems uh, uh, clear that what you've been warning about for a long time is getting worse. Um, and so, nat- natural, I just will start with the news and 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 take it from there. Um, but in something that would have been, you know, inconceivable, you know, I don't know, at any other moment in modern American history, you have the president, ex-president of the United States, Donald Trump, saying over the weekend that he invited Russia to invade Europe uh, and do whatever the hell they wanted with them and uh, seemed to be neglectful of the benefits of NATO, but also seem to be neglectful of the possible risks of World War III. Uh, kind of freaked me out, but uh, maybe you had a, oh yeah, that's what I expect from the guy reaction. Well, uh, listen, I take everything he says literally and seriously. And I, I think so much of the Trump era has been covered like it's a reality show. Right, like so, when he was on The Apprentice, if Lil John and Meatloaf 
uh, were fighting in one episode. Uh, they could be best friends in the next. Um, and you really didn't have to understand how they went from enemy to friend. Didn't matter. But, but everything that we're talking about here is connected. And certainly, if you read the press in Berlin, in Paris, in London, uh, in the Baltic republics, in Poland, uh, there is deep and genuine concern uh, because those are the places uh, where the first citizens uh, will be killed in a global war. And so I, I think the most important thing for people just broadly to understand, um, we have a major war underway in Europe that the Republican Party's position will vastly strengthen the Russian dictator who just did an interview where he lectured about a thousand years of Russian history for the purpose of making a singular point, which is that his territorial ambitions are not over and, in his view, completely justified. At the same time, you have Vladimir Putin getting ready to go to North Korea. You have a connection between Iran and North Korea. And really what we see in the Middle East is a war that is a proxy war between Iran and the United States, between Iran and Israel, uh, where Iran is surrounded Israel on, on three sides. And so we, we are at a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous moment in the entire security architecture of the world, built by our grandparents, built by our great-grandparents, built by very wise men and women, in the aftermath of humanity's greatest tragedy, its greatest event, the Second World War, those institutions, imperfect though they may be, that is what Donald Trump is striking at. These are, these are foundational to the peace of the world. And, and he, is, he is running a campaign against the American way of life simultaneously. And so we don't talk about these things in a particularly coherent way um, very often, but that is what is coming down the road. And, and we're moving towards the edge of a cliff in a continuing story that's unfolded over eight years where there's not a lot of room left to back up away from that edge. Yeah, in fact, you know, as as you intimated a moment ago, we're actually not heading for that cliff. You know, we're already at it in some respects because Donald Trump has somehow installed himself as Speaker of the House of Representatives. And so the Senate gets together, thanks to a minority of Republicans, and they put through piece of legislation to provide aid funding for Ukraine. <laughs> and Speaker Mike Johnson, who is acting explicitly at Trump's behest, says, we're not going to vote on that. Even though, by the way, a majority of people in the House of Representatives want to have it happen. And we've already seen Ukraine is running out of weapons. People are dying. 
Ukraine is losing ground. This is four months late. Um, and if he has his way, it's not going to get through this year. Russia's going to make huge headway, uh, and it's going to be catastrophic for the interests of the United States and Europe. So it's it's not in the in the abstract future because this movement is already in place in certain parts of our uh, political apparatus. Franklin Roosevelt talked about this late into the evening with the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King one night, um, and and during the conversation, which King took took copious notes on, FDR is laying out the architecture of all of these institutions, NATO, uh, that, that come to be. And, and he talks about the world that will emerge from the Second World War. And he lays out all of his aspirations for it. And he, and he says to Mackenzie King that he's under no illusions that anything lasts forever. He just hopes that the American-led order that will emerge endures and keeps the peace, keeps another world war from starting that triggers Armageddon for as long as everyone who's alive on the day the war is won is still alive. And the youngest of those people are Trump's age. And, and so we are at the end of an epoch in history where we seem to have outrun amazingly within the living lifetime of the 250,000 living Holocaust survivors. We, we seem to have outrun the memory of the fragility and the sacrifices uh, that it took to maintain liberty, to maintain liberty and freedom uh, over, over, over the course of the 20th century. Um, I, I think that the, that the probably the greatest speech of the 20th century, it encapsulates it, sums it up, the valedictory, is the address that Elie Wiesel gave in the Clinton White House um, at, at a speaker series in 1999. And the speech is about indifference. He says the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And, and the indifference um, to the forces of tyranny and thuggery. I mean, you have tens of thousands of Ukrainian children that have been shipped east, gone, absorbed into the Russian state. So, so we live in a moment where there's, there's a profound, not a political question, not, a, not an ideological question, but, but a moral proposition that's steeped in Americanism. In the, in the four freedoms that Franklin Roosevelt talked about. So, it was, so we're, we're at an urgent, urgent, urgent hour um, in, a, in a year that's going to be historic, chaotic, and, and completely unpredictable uh, where it's possible uh, that Donald Trump could be inaugurated 47th president uh, on January 20th. It's about less than a year away now, obviously. Right. A day in which he said, you know, he will be a dictator for a day, a day which his team has said they will begin rounding up immigrants and putting them in concentration camps, a day in which his team has said they will round up 
uh, their opponents and jail them if necessary or do worse. A day in which the United States could cease being a democracy and move towards being an autocracy. Um, but before we get to that day, as as you note, there's an election. One of the things that I found shocking about this uh, uh, statement of Trump's over the weekend, and it's hard to be shocked. You know, I mean, I was like you, one of these people warning about Trump seven years ago. But but there are tens of millions of Americans who reflexively support this man. The leadership of the Republican Party either supports him or refuses to stand up to him. Even those who are critical of him say they will vote for him. Lindsey Graham, um, sidekick of John McCain, said, no, I'm going to vote against Ukraine aid. Um, Trump is a menace. If you believe the polls, so are half the American people. How do we get there? Well, I was saying, you know, I um, I don't know uh, what happens uh, after we leave this life, right? If there's an afterlife or not. But if there's a heaven, Lindsey Graham somehow makes it up there. John McCain is going to kick that guy's ass. Okay. There's no, there's no, no doubt about that. No, no doubt. No doubt about it. Um, this is, so first off, I, I was just watching some cable news coverage today, um, of what's happening in the country, in the world. It's just appalling, right? It's, it's just detached from reality. The inability uh, to explicate the inability to have a coherence that contextualizes what we're seeing. So let's let's look at that deranged and unhinged Trump performance. And, and let's just, before we say anything else, acknowledge the only time the Article 5 convention in NATO's charter has been invoked was on the occasion of September 11th. There are dead... Canadians, dead British, dead Germans, dead Dutch. There are many dead from our allied nations. There were 26 nations that landed forces on D-Day. Eisenhower, when, when, he, when he gave the first address as, as a head of state in 1958 to NATO, as the man who had been its first commander, he said, this is an organization of peace. He talked about the ruination of, of civilization, the destruction of Europe that, 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 had, that, had, that had ended just 13 years before. And the crowd while, while Donald Trump is, is really attacking something foundationally that keeps us safe, that keeps my 17-year-old son from, from being killed in action in a world war, something that gives us power and strength 
The NATO nations are 45% of the world's GDP. This is, this is the most powerful military alliance in, in, in the history of Earth. And, and it got more powerful, more powerful with the addition of Sweden and Finland. And the crowd, in a frenzy, in a contagion that is identical to the contagions that you saw in Nuremberg in 1932, 1933, 1934, is chanting, fuck Joe Biden, fuck Joe Biden, who's the president of the United States. So there are no depths, there is no dignity, there is no restraint, there is no respect. There is a hollowing out of every virtue of decency, of patriotism, and you see this spreading nationalism. It's a virulence. It's a a malevolence. And, And when you look at that crowd, there's something ugly building, and it's out of the box. And it needs to be opposed, not understood, because the bottom line, Though we wish no harm, any of us who oppose this, to anyone who's at that rally, those people cannot be allowed to impose their insanity on the country, not on its security, not on the lives of its people, because what they want is control, control. And this movement that has come together with Mike Johnson a bona fide religious extremist and fanatic who doesn't believe in the U.S. Constitution, who has subverted the Congress, made himself a vassal of his party's leader, of his faction's leader, doing his bidding, undermining the security of the country, contradicting himself, who believes that people and dinosaurs walked around the earth 6,000 years ago? Holy shit. Holy shit. Well, he talks to God, you know, so he's, right. got, it on, he's got it firsthand. Right. If he talks to God, God's pissed at him. Yeah. Well, if he, he thinks him he's to pull talking his head to, out of his ass. If he thinks he's talking to a supernatural uh, power, my, my sense is it's probably not God. Um, but, you know, here in this serious nation, the most powerful nation on earth, the leader of this great alliance, you know, we have the contrast between Trump saying, Russia, do whatever the hell you want, and Biden saying, let's defend Ukraine. Trump saying, I you know, essentially want to help Russia. Biden saying he wants to help the U.S. Trump saying, I don't believe in the Constitution. Biden saying, I'm going to defend the Constitution. Trump leading a coup. Biden leading the post-coup healing process. In the midst of all of that, there's a the principal debate on Sunday morning talk shows in America this week was whether 81-year-old Joe Biden was too old to face 77-year-old Donald Trump in this election. And major media outlets were picking up this story largely because a Trump hack lawyer inserted a line in 
a legal document that actually exonerated Biden of any wrongdoing about Biden's memory because he hesitated on some questions on October 8th of last year as he was working around the clock to manage the aftershocks of the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel. Um, And yet, somehow, this becomes our central debate. And to me, it's a form of kind of whistling past the graveyard. Are we going to talk about this shit for the next nine months and then wake up and say, hey, where's Steve? Oh, the men came to take him away in the middle of the night. Hey, our friends at the New Republic, Penn America, and the American Library Association are staging a special event in April to fight the book bans that are sweeping our country. Uh, At the event, they will unveil the annual list of the top 10 most challenged books of the year and support authors who have been censored. Uh, As part of this Right to Read celebration, uh, the sponsors will also be naming the winners of the Toni Morrison Courage Award for people on the front lines standing up against book bans. Please support this urgent First Amendment cause by visiting tnr.com slash donate. That's donate with an exclamation point. This is one of the most important battles for American democracy being fought today. Please make your voice heard by visiting tnr.com backslash donate today. I'm very worried. I'm very worried. Donald Trump has to be defeated in a political campaign. I, I don't have any worry about the president's capacity to do his job and be president. But, but I, this is, it's hands down, hands down, right? It's, it's the, it's the most successful legislative, um, White House by accomplishment since at least Bill Clinton, um, you know, I, and I don't mean to diminish health care, but he he under the difficulty of what he was he was facing. Um, as, as good as that has been is how bad the communications has been. And so and so the report, you go and you look at it and James Carville's made this point. Right. Like we're, what, 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 you got a Democratic administration. that in all, all the history of the last 20 years. The, the the attorney general thinks he's going to get some cookie somewhere in the afterlife and a, a ribbon, you know, that I'll demonstrate my fairness by handing a gun to somebody with no integrity who will later use it to shoot me. And, th- and that's what happened there in the report. Right. But life's not fair. It's not fair. Right, so in a presidential campaign, when bad stuff happens, you got to take it. You got to make good with it. And so the news conference at that night, they dig a hundred foot hole. 
That's why the press is talking about this on Sunday. There's no Super Bowl interview. And this is a big deal. Because because the monetization of that, right? What was that what was that interview worth for $15 million? Just in cash. Right at a, at a rate. It's worth it's worth two hundred million dollars. This was this was the biggest audience in the country to to dispel what what eighty six percent of the country has a worry about. That that's an enormous number. Eighty six percent of the country's looking, right? And saying is saying these guys are these guys are too old. Right? And so the White House has cloistered him. And by cloistering him, when he appears, they've raised every appearance into a life and death existential event where, where each mistake right, is, is amplified to, to the point where we get this insanity. And so, so there's a very fundamental kind of, kind of way to tell who's winning this campaign. Whomever the race is about is losing. And incredibly, and the evidence of the incompetence and dysfunction in the communication operation is that the race has been about Joe Biden. Right? And so, so we're 10 months out it's too late now, right, for, for anyone through a regular primary process to, to emerge. But, but here's the deal, right? There, there's nothing that supersedes beating Donald Trump. Nothing. And if you can't perform, you got to step aside. And so you look at the Twitter, excuse me, the TikTok release that the that the president's team put out there in the Super Bowl. I, I have I have college age kids. Right, they're they're supposed to be. I'm lobbying my kids for Joe Biden, and they're mocking him, laughing at him, and so are all their friends. If you look at the TikTok threads on that video, not good. So I think you have a very out of touch. Democratic establishment. You know, people will say, right, you know, that white working class voter, like, how, how are they voting for Trump, who clearly is not on their side, doesn't care about them, has stiffed every contractor? Right. And, and my answer to the question is, is that how many plumbers and welders do you think are working at the DNC? Right. There's, there's not, there's not very many. And, and so we got to be real about this. And, and the dumbest fucking thing. Right, that that anybody has said in the last year in politics is this notion that by talking about this a year ago, it was somehow helping Trump. And so, in a way that's totally unique historically to the Democratic Party, which has never been good, right, as a, as a as an institution of stifling dissent, right, Biden, who is who is as weak externally. Right, is a political proposition with the numbers, is the strongest president regarding his, his hold on the reins of the institution every bit as much as Trump. 
right? And so, so then you have this issue, right, where the entire country's fed this line, right? And I'll, I'll take a second backseat to anyone on opposing Trump, right? But but you're told all the time, right? You turn, you put on CNN, right? It's the country's evenly divided. No one agrees on anything. Well, you got you got eighty percent of the country that that looks at the selection of the two political party institutions and says we don't want it. But those two institutions agree on something, which is you're going to get it. And and so when you have a guy like Bobby Kennedy in this, right, who's going to be, you know, around 30 percent, I suspect, as we drift like deeper into the spring. Um, and you kind of realize that the delta between zero electoral votes in a three way um, and and 270 electoral votes is the delta between about 32 and three quarters percent of the vote and 39 percent. Right. So. We we have right volatility, right? Like like in our system now, pent up. I don't know what because we didn't make the generational handoff, right? We, we have a. I remember saying like a really kind of a Sunday show, you know, top guy. Would I would have bet a lot of money? Two thousand sixteen, last baby boomer election. I would have bet a lot of money on that. Say, okay, wasn't counting on the pandemic. Stuff happens. This is why gambling's dangerous, right? Okay. Right. Biden's the last guy, right? Like he gets in the race. He can beat Trump. We're we're having another one of these in 2024. This is this is, you know, Carville, you know, talks about this. Right? He says, you know, when I was in college and I got into politics, right, it was John Kennedy in 1960. But if I was that age in 1960, it would have been like having Alf Landon run. So this, this is a real issue, right? And, and having people go on television, like, and yell at the American people, tell them they're wrong, talking about, like, Biden is the wisest guy in the land, it's not going to work, right? And, and here's the deal on this. I look back on the 04 Bush campaign. A lot of people, right, would go and talk about how dumb Bush was. And, and in any Democratic Party event I ever go to fundraisers, always someone will be the first person who comes up to tell me how stupid George Bush is. And it's usually my way of knowing who the dumbest person in that room is. Right. But the, but the Bush, the Bush campaign, right, did not try to convince the American people. He was Albert Einstein. We didn't go, we didn't go out and say he's a genius. And, and so, so there's this defensiveness, right, in the, in the Biden campaign. He's the wisest guy in the land. You know, Bakari Sellers, who's a really smart guy, right? He's on CNN yesterday, and John Berman asked him, right? So, so basically, are you comfortable in a race where the, where the narrative frame is dangerous versus old? And, and he's like, yeah, we'll win that. And, and, he goes in, and he goes on, and he says, you know, he's the most accomplished grandpa in, in American history. Which is hyperbole, right? It's not. It's not. It's not true. But but that's not the frame of the race. It's not going to be old versus dangerous. It's going to be strong versus weak. And there's never been an election in American history where the candidate framed as weak has ever won. So like one one idea, like I've said, is like kind of on his gate and his shuffle. They they should bust the Ferdinand Magellan, which is rail car one. It's in a museum in Florida. FDR used it, Truman used it, Reagan used it, it's undefeated. 
put put them on a train, right, and 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 move the train through the country and bring the crowds to the president, right, as he as he as he comes through. But they're gonna they're gonna they have to figure out a way to put Trump at the center of the race, and to take the fight to him, and and the and the hide the president strategy, right, where he doesn't engage, we don't see him. And the quality of the of the content released this week was horrific, and the stakes are too high to, to bullshit about this. It's, it's, this is this is you know there's a there's a problem in the Biden campaign. Biden campaign is playing the Super Bowl like they're the fucking New York Jets, right? And that's and, pretty harsh. And 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 we got to talk about it, right? We got to talk about it. Because it's still February, and there's time to fix it. But they, but they should not be behind Donald Trump. They got to figure it out. And and this last weekend was a systems failure across the board. Across the board. Yeah. No. There's no question about that. And frankly, um, I have uh, since it's just you and me here talking. I uh, uh, have have. Uh, um, had some conversations with very senior people in the White House in the past three or four days. They know it. They agree with it. Uh, now, I wrote a, something on this in which I said, you know, you know, this age issue is not going to go away. You got to figure out a right way to deal with it as opposed to the wrong way to deal with it. And I suggested several things, and I didn't suggest the rail car, but I did suggest that the vast majority of this election is going to be driven by social media. And you've got the ability to go and take pictures, video of the president all day long interacting with people and use the best bits of it and get it out there and show him at his best in the medium that's actually going to drive this election. Because it's not 2016. It's not about big ad buys. It's going to be about what people are getting on their own phone and sharing with each other. And you've got to run a campaign in which you are vigorously opposed to Donald Trump. And so, you know, saying I'm not going to debate is not the best way to approach that. You've got to go out there and people have got to say, oh, man, he is bringing it when it comes to Donald Trump, because that's going to communicate vitality. And you've got to surround yourself with the next generation politicians who send the message of this. Uh, and I strongly believe, and I, you may not agree with me, but I strongly believe that the best person uh, to, to start with is Kamala Harris, because I think having a good, vital, articulate vice president addresses a bunch of issues, but it also includes Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer and this whole next generation. And to say, look, I'm a grandpa and I'm going to prepare my legacy. I'm going to leave this place better than I found it. I've got this great group of people. We've got a great agenda. We're going to first defend the country from this menace, and then we're going to prepare it for the future. And I personally, but see, you're a political consultant, and I'm just you know, an old guy from New Jersey who kibitzes. So, you know, beyond what you've just said, what else should they do? Well, so I'm, I'm going to answer that, right? But but since you brought up the New Jersey part, right? I, I just I have this urge to speak in New Jersey, right? To the to the campaign. Here's the reality: um, Trump is no greater a threat 
today than he was on January 5th or on December 5th of 2019, right, or on January 7th of 2021. He's always been the same constant guy. There are hundreds of quotes in the newspapers where senior Biden campaign White House officials and Democrats are talking about, we want Trump to be the nominee again because he's the easiest guy to beat. Now, there's a flaw in that strategy because we only have two political parties. And the guy typically who becomes the nominee of one of the two parties has a better than even chance of being president. So so Trump was not treated like a threat. He was handled like a prop. And so everybody Team Biden joins the list of people who thought they could ride the tiger only to wind up inside. So now here we are. And I would just want to gratuitously yell for two minutes before I got to the point of what are we going to do now? So so there's a fundamental question. Just let's look at a couple people. Look at Mark Zuckerberg who's trying to get your kids to put goggles over their head and to live in the metaverse while he's building a $150 million bunker on his private island. Is that guy on your side? That guy's not on your fucking side. Is, Is Robert Kennedy on your side? He's not on his family's side. He's not on your fucking side. Is Donald Trump on your side? Do you really want Mike Johnson peering through your daughter's bedroom window, regulating her birth control? Mike Johnson isn't on your side. In fact, a lot of these people would line you up against the wall. You know who's on your side in this race? You know who gives a shit about your family and about the country? Joe Biden does. Joe Biden does. Joe Biden is on your side. So that so you start there. The, the second thing, right, is is Donald Trump dangerously unhinged. And he commands a cult of personality that at its at its at its at its solid nuclear core, let's say, is is whatever many hundreds of thousands of people. And it and it expands out from there. We gotta make an argument to people on the edge of that circle who look at both parties and see equivalence between them, and try to evaluate the election through the prism of what side is out to get me, that in fact, 
No one in the Democratic Party is out to get you. But the other party's out to get a lot of people. You mentioned the immigration deportation. I, I want everybody, right, everyone who's our age will remember Elian Gonzalez. And, and, and for anybody who's younger who's watching, right, I mean, there's no other way to score the deportation effort of one kid. There's one kid. And it was like a Category 10 clusterfuck, right, that I still remember like 30 years later, like it was yesterday. It, what, what does anybody imagine the deportation of this all looks like? It's a massive police state. That's what Donald Trump is promising. You want to see uniform National Guard federalized on the streets of every American city? I don't want to see that. And the American people don't want to see it. And and so this has been covered like a carnival. But but it's not a carnival. This country is in a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous spot. Because our adversaries look. And they have to wonder, does this look like a serious country with serious leaders? The, the entire proposition of democracy, as Lincoln talked about it, it's, 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 it's preservation and perseverance through the Civil War, was a message to the world that a, that a people's government could survive profound hardship and sacrifice to maintain itself as opposed to devouring itself. And we're devouring ourselves. We're devouring ourselves. And, and what I would say, and, and kind of last thing, you said, what can you do? It's a very important speech for Democrats um, who are involved in political campaigns, in positions of responsibility, to get in a room and watch together. And that would be Barbara Jordan's keynote address to the 1976 Democratic National Convention. Right? If, if Joe Biden were to run on that message and be able to communicate that message, then Donald Trump in this terrible era will end. It's early in the game. Yet, there's been enough possessions, right, for people to start yelling at the coach from the stands. And the coach in this case isn't the president. Right? The, the president needs to be put in a position where he can succeed in the context of a coherent strategy that can take the fight to Donald Trump and communicate to the American people after three years of unresponded propaganda bullshit that this guy's actually on your side. He's a good guy. And that Joe Biden has been painted into a corrupt figure, a senile figure, 
all of these things. It's terrible. It's time to fight back. I totally agree with you. And I am so glad that you have joined us and provided this kind of clear-eyed guidance um, at a time where I share uh, concerns that, that, that you have. I think this is a very perilous moment. And we've got to just sort of push aside our feelings and get to the facts and figure out how to get from here to there. And I think the way you describe it makes a great deal of sense. Uh, perhaps later this year we can coax you back to join us again. But for It'll now, be my pleasure anytime. Thank you very much, Steve, for for joining us and for continually flying the banner of New Jersey. Which you know, clearly, if people listen to you and to me, uh, it is a kind of it was like Plato's Symposium. It's a kind of intellectual landscape that uh, will lift up America. Uh, people don't get that because of the Sopranos and the pizza, but I think I think we have an opportunity uh, to communicate that this is where the common sense in America comes from. Um, certainly, that's what I get when I hear you. So thanks, Steve. Thanks uh, to everybody for listening. Uh, and we'll be back with more every single day, several times a day. Bye-bye. Take care, David.